invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Let me just encourage you, if, if you're not bringing a personal copy of the Bible with you, I encourage you to start doing that as a regular habit. Um, Paul called the Bereans a noble-minded people because they compared what Paul, the apostle, was saying to the words of Scripture. Men have given their lives, they've shed their blood to publish copies of the Bible for us by God's providence. So let me encourage you to avail yourselves of this grace. The words to which I would call your attention this morning are to be found in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading from verses 19 to 34. The sermon text will come from verses 25 and following. This is God's Word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are challenging words indeed. We ask you today, help us to take them to heart. We ask you, Lord, 
to do the work in us that you intend to do. Teach us. Make us today like your little lambs who sit at your feet, listening, yearning to hear from you the words of life, for there's no other one to give them to us. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. This morning, you notice that Jesus is reaching a conclusion here. We're closing out the chapter, and he began by saying, therefore. That's why we read the whole preceding part, because everything that came before this and those three or so sermons that we had, all of it is leading up to this one lengthy conclusion that Jesus draws in verses 25 and 30 to 34. He said at the beginning here, therefore I tell you, or you could, you could translate it this way, uh, because of this, or on account of this, here is some counsel. In light of everything said in verses 19 to 21, which was, in a nutshell, uh, your heart, your hope, your love, your vision, all of that must be singular in the here and now. That's your objective in life is that you are placing all of your hope in one basket, as everyone tells you not to do. You are to place all of your hope in one basket. You are to think of yourself as a pilgrim in this life who is seeking a home that is yet to come. And you are looking to that home. In light of that, in light of everything said in verses 19 to 21, in other words, Jesus is saying, here is the resulting instruction. Stop being anxious. This is an imperative. He is giving you a command, and therefore we would translate it. He says, do not be anxious in the ESV. A literal translation would be, stop being anxious. Anxious. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? With reference to anxiety, Jesus issued a command. Stop. It brings to mind maybe that old skit by Bob Newhart. A lady came in to him as he's playing a a psychiatrist, not a chiropractor. It would be a different skit altogether. She came into him and she had this overwhelming fear of being buried alive and she's sharing her fear with Bob Newhart as her, as her psychiatrist and she says, I, I have this overwhelming fear of being buried alive and Bob, Hart, Bob Newhart's counsel to her was, stop it. Stop being afraid. And Jesus issues a command. Stop being anxious. And he used a phrase that you and I need to become familiar with. You notice that he said, being anxious. In other words, Jesus was careful to define anxiety as something internal, not external. Specifically, he defined it as something that you and I, in some sense, have control over. And that it is His will for you in this life not to experience. 
Now, I want to be careful here and acknowledge that Jesus' instructions to us are very, very counter-cultural. In fact, we could probably say that they are counterintuitive. What are you talking about? I can't help this at all. This, this is an experience that I have, and I can't do anything about it. Why is it countercultural? Well, I think Dr. Joseph Davis, who is a, a research professor at, of sociology at the University of Virginia, captured it pretty well in a recent journal article. Listen to what he wrote. We live in a medicalized society. We have grown accustomed to hearing that yet another behavior, emotional state, temperament, or bodily experience, some feature of life not previously regarded as a syndrome or disorder or addiction or risk factor, will henceforth be defined as and treated as a medical problem. Those unhappy with their shyness or fear of criticism may be diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. Women not sufficiently interested in sex may be diagnosed with female sexual interest and arousal disorder. Kids who do not pay adequate attention to their studies may be diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which he notes, by the way, has been diagnosed in one out of every five American 12-year-old boys. One out of five. He goes on, even homelessness now has a diagnostic code. What's a diagnostic code? This is a reference to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder. For short, we call it the DSM. We're on version 5, published in 2013 for short. This diagnostic manual was originally published in 1952. And it gives clinicians a series of of questions, uh, boxes to check, so to speak, to determine what is affecting you, what your emotional state is, and how to help you to give you a diagnosis for your particular mental disorder. Over time, this is the fifth version, over time mental disorders, diagnoses, some are added and some are taken away. For instance, it used to include a diagnosis for the disorder of homosexuality. You wonder why that has been deleted. Until the 1980s, certain people were diagnosed with a masochistic personality disorder until they decided to update the book. This disorder, coming from a Freudian psychoanalysis, was changed to self-defeating personality disorder in version 3 of the DSM. But after a strong campaign led in part by feminist psychologists and including media coverage protest demonstrations and threats of legal action, challenging its validity on the ground that it amounted to victim-blaming, it was successfully blocked from becoming a full diagnostic category, and mentions of it were deleted from the fourth edition. Now, what's the point? 
Well, this committee of psychiatrists sitting over the publication of this manual are not entirely driven by what we would call medicine. There are public interest groups, insurance companies, all who have a vested interest in determining these categories and how you might be treated by them. And that should be one of your concerns. But your deepest concern, brothers and sisters, must be for how the DSM approaches life and its troubles compared to the teaching of the Bible. Foremost among your concerns must be this. Does the diagnostic and statistical manual rightly define what it means to be human? I'll ask you a question. Do you ever wonder why? With all of the focus today on the destigmatization of mental health, along with the advancement in psychotropic therapies for those who have mental disorders. You ever wonder why we are where we are with all of the medications that are available, all of the clinicians that are available, and yet the United States of America, in the United States of America, one of the leading causes of death today is suicide. I would suggest to you that it is because the DSM actually induces a mechanistic view of the world, which strips it of meaning and beauty. Let me quote to you from a Nobel laureate, Francis Crick. You, your joys and your sorrows your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. In other words, if you want to define what a human is, he's chemistry. Nothing more. Is this a biblical worldview? Is that all that you are? Neurotransmitters? Peptides? Or are you more than that? The question that we need to ask as we think through Jesus' instruction this morning on anxiety is thinking about all of this and where we are in our cultural moment, especially having come through COVID and realizing that through uh, our experience with COVID, prescriptions for anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications have risen by 34% across the country. We need to ask this fundamental question. How is it that circumstances which are external to me get inside? How do circumstances which are outside of you get inside of you? 
to affect heart palpitations, sweating, sleeplessness, headache, tension. How, what's the medium through which it enters? Does it come through sense of smell? You, you sniff it in or you wear a mask and it prevents you from these circumstances? We can only conclude that it comes through one medium. Your mind. Still some would respond, yes, but I don't control that my mind improperly processes, processes these things. But I want you to notice as we work through Jesus' teaching this morning, over and over and over again, He is appealing to you in one way. Logic. He wants you to think differently. What he teaches us this morning, just in a nutshell, is that worry about life is an irrational emotion that flows from a feeble faith to overcome it, set your mind on heaven. To begin with, Jesus gives us several arguments and illustrations, and I want to sum these up for you in a, in a really simple way. If, if you are one who, who, who has lots of anxiety, especially in these days, how, in a nutshell, does Jesus teach you to begin processing that? Scripture, whenever it tells us to stop doing something, it always instructs us to put something else on. You, you go through the book of Colossians and it, it teaches us to, to stop doing certain things. Well, it always tells us to do something opposite of that. Stop doing this and do something differently. It, it's no different when we come to worries about uh, anxiety. Uh, Jesus, in his arguments and illustrations this morning, is teaching us the put-offs and the put-ons of anxiety. The first one. Here's the put on. Start thinking of life in God's terms. Start thinking of life in God's terms. Notice what he says with me in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here's the first rhetorical question that he's presenting to you. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? You, you, you can hear all of these echoes of what he's talked to us about before. Where is your treasure? Are you building up treasures for yourself on earth? Are you building up treasures in heaven? We are beginning from this perspective to think about life at a higher plane. I'm borrowing some language there, but this is the biblical idea. In other words, Jesus is asking you to think about this. What is life's meaning? What is it all about? What sort of a being are you? Are you just an unreasoning animal whose daily concern is food, clothing, food, clothing, food, clothing, food, clothing, death, and blackness? Or are you more than that? Jesus begins by saying, 
you are not valuing your life correctly. You're not defining your needs correctly. Some of us, we sit, we sit at home, perhaps in the dark, and I say, I, I, what I need, I need a vacation. I need to go to this college. I need to have this career. I need to have this marriage. I need to have this clothing. Or I cannot be happy. Isn't life more than those things? Isn't isn't life more than college? Isn't life uh, about more than, more than marriage? More than work? Those things, yes, are a means. But isn't it about more than that? Is that all that you are? Molecules that meet somewhere in the space of your head? Scripture teaches that you are not a mere animal. God has created you in His image. You, you are a body, soul, being. And your soul, whether wicked or righteous, is going to live forever. Whether or not you eat today, whether or not you go on a vacation tomorrow, your soul will live forever. And God has created you in His image with purpose and meaning. You are not a beast. Therefore, He calls on you to take responsibility for your thoughts. You are not confined by them. They do not rule you. They do not govern you. You are responsible to define your life and its purpose rightly in light of God's Word. We remember that people with a right view of life do not arrive there accidentally. It is the work of Christ through His Spirit, through His Word. The first thing that you and I should do is begin to define life in God's terms. You are not just the processes of neurotransmitters. You are a soulful being. Secondly, Start thinking of your provision in God's terms. He gives us a couple of illustrations here. Notice in verse 26. Look at the birds. This is another command. Look at them. Do it. Look at the birds. Notice that we don't see birds lying dead all, all around the ground. And yet, we can't also see birds disking up a field and planting grain. How are they being provided for? Jesus asks another rhetorical question to get you thinking. Are you not worth more than the birds? Do you not know that God provides all things for His creation? These, what you see around you is not the series of random processes. It is the work of God governing His universe. These pine trees are tall because God has preserved them <coughs> through hurricanes and tornadoes. He loves His creation, and He provides for it. He gives us another illustration, doesn't He? Verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... 
will he not much more clothe you? What conclusions does Jesus want the anxious person to reach when he asks these questions? He wants you to remember that God is personally concerned about everything that concerns you. In his eyes, your body and your mind are not a throwaway. He's not only concerned about your soul. He loves every facet of you. He created you to have the need for food and water. He created that need. Do you think he's not concerned about fulfilling it in your life? God has the power, listen to me, God has the power to provide everything that you need. Do you need food? God can provide you with food. Do you need friends? God can provide you with friends. Do you need joy? Do you know who dispenses joy? In Galatians 5.22, we are reminded that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It comes from God. In Psalm 16.11, listen to these words. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. If I want pure joy, if I want it with all my heart, where do I seek it? Disney World? No. You go and you ask the one who can scoop down his right hand and give it to you. This is why in Psalm 51 verse 12, the psalmist rightly says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Lord, I, I lack joy. I know that this is a, a right a result of my own sin. Please restore joy to me. God can provide you with joy. God provides food. God provides friends. God provides a college acceptance letter. Whatever your need is, God can provide it. Some look at this passage in a, the old King James, beginning in verse 25, translates it, Therefore I tell you, have no care about your life. And there were some who criticized this and say. If you take Jesus' instructions seriously, every Christian would be lazy. What do you mean don't have a care? I appreciate Martin Luther's response when he said, God provides food for the birds, but he doesn't put it in their mouths. A third thing, you start thinking about Processing your life from God's perspective, remember that God provides everything for you, including what we call today emotional health. Lastly, his third point, start thinking of the worthlessness of anxiety. Start thinking of the worthlessness of anxiety. Notice what he said in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What a poignant question. Today we think of, of, often think of work in terms of production, of widgets. What, am I, what did you do for me today? How many sales did you close? Jesus asks you this rhetorical question. He wants you to think about it. Which one of you, 
by worrying has added a single day to his life? That's the question. How many of you by worrying have caused yourself to grow that extra inch so that you could make the basketball team? This is a simple question in a capitalistic society. What's the return? The answer naturally is nothing. But it isn't actually nothing, is it? Instead of adding to our lives, we know that anxiety and stress and worry do what? They take away from it. They rob joy. They take away even from the span of our lives. How many of you, your physicians have said, you need to calm down. If you keep on going at this pace and worked up to this point, you're going to die. Start thinking of the worthlessness of anxiety. These, Jesus is calling upon you in this moment when he says to you, stop being anxious. He, he doesn't quit there. But as your gentle and loving Savior, He says, here are the things I want you to put on. My beloved child, when you are tempted to say to yourself, I I can't be happy. There's no happiness in this life for me. I I can't have it. There's nothing that's going to make me happy. Jesus is saying to you, stop. Put this thought on. Think about the infinite love of God for you in Christ Remember that you are not just a body, but you are a soul that will live forever. Notice then that Jesus reaches a diagnostic conclusion in verse 30. We've gone through, he's asked the questions, he's listened to our answers with his infinite ear, and he says this, O you of little faith. Now, at this point, every one of us would be tempted to push our chair back from the desk and say, how dare you? How dare you associate anxiety with faith? Don't you know that I believe all the right things? I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I believe in a heaven that is to come. This has nothing to do with my faith. Who do you think you are? Well, He is the infinite creator of the universe. He knows you infinitely well. He knows every need that He created you to have. He knows you better than you know yourself. He never, ever makes a bad diagnosis. And here, your Lord relates anxiety and faith. Three other times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus would use this phrase, you of little faith. When the disciples are rowing with all their might in the boat and they're being capsized by the waves and they wake Him up, He turns around and He looks at them. Oh, you of little faith. How dare you? Or he looks at Peter when he's lifting him up out of the waters and he looks down in his eyes and he said, why did you doubt, O you of little faith? And again, when the disciples are rowing across the waters, they are discussing amongst themselves how they're going to eat. And Jesus looked at them and he said, O you of little faith. 
Many insist that anxiety is, is not an issue of faith. It has nothing to do with that. I believe the right things. What Jesus is calling on you in this moment to do is focus on growing your faith. We talked about improving our baptism. Faith, faith is something that can be exercised like your biceps and your triceps and your calf muscles and your ability to endure long distances. Faith is something that can grow and it needs to grow. This is what we call sanctification. It is changing you, enabling you not just to be a good person, do you understand, but to believe the right things in the right circumstances. Sanctification is enabling you to apply God's Word in the right situations and to rest in it. To be still and know that He is God. And here I would just remind you but Jesus has also said in John 16, in this life, you will have trouble. Do you believe that? You will have trouble because of sin. You will have trouble, listen to me, because Christ has ordained seasons of trouble for you. Turn over to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 with me. This is such a helpful passage to meditate on, to think on, to draw out the marrow of. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And let's stop just here. I think we should make this point because we find it also in James chapter 1 where he says, Beloved, Consider it all joy when you face trials of various types. Don't think that the apostles or your Lord is expecting you to go out to uh, Walmart and buy a cake when your cat dies. He is addressing the way that you think of this. Consider it. Not rejoice over it. Not hold a parade but to consider it in a certain way. And here we find in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Not because of the moment, not because of the physical affliction that I might be suffering, not because the pain, rheumatoid arthritis, inflames my body with. I don't love that. But what I love is the product that God on the inside is strengthening my soul through this circumstance. He's making me stronger. He is helping me to divest of every hope that I have sown in this world and to hope only in the world to come. That's where my mind must be. That's what I rejoice in. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. There's no other way. You think about the marathon runner. 
No person wakes up on Tuesday morning and says, I'm going to go run a marathon. It takes work. Practice. You run a mile. You run two. You run three. And finally, 26. This is how faith grows. And endurance produces character, and character finally produces hope. And my hope is placed finally through all of that suffering, through all of that perseverance, through all of those unanswered prayers that I kept on praying. God produced in me a hope that can never be spoiled. This tempers your response to every affliction, doesn't it? Every affliction. Lord, you've ordained this for me. It's not random. It's not an accident. And because of that, I understand that every affliction is just like an ocean. It has a shore. It it can only go as far as your Lord permits it to go. And just as the ocean is bounded by the shore, and that's where it has to stop, every affliction that afflicts you in this life is bounded by God's governance. Lord, you've ordained this for me. Help me to respond to it rightly. Let's look just here lastly at his concluding instruction. My faith is weak. I need to grow in my faith. He's given me, not by accident, he's given me this affliction to press me on to maturity. Verses 31 to 33. He tells you what you should not do. Therefore, back to Matthew 6. Do not be anxious. You can hear his kind words, can't you? Not yelling at you, looking at you. Don't be anxious. Beloved, it's not my will for you to be anxious. That's not what I want for you. He gives you some reasons for it again. It's a pagan practice. Verse 32, this is what the Gentiles do. They only seek what can be found on this earth. What unbelieving men do. Don't you know that your Father knows what you need infinitely well? And He tells you then what you should do. Seek the kingdom of righteousness first in order to have these things. You, you, in the very nutshell of who you are, if if we put you in a pot and boiled you down and let you simmer until only your essence was left, what would be there? A soul. An eternal, everlasting soul. And so if you want to seek your own welfare, what are you going to give attention to? If that's who the, the essence of who you are, you give attention to your spiritual being. It is your soul, not your body, that is the primary you. You're the seat of your affections, your mind, your will, it's all there. So that when your body dies and your soul goes on, guess what continues? The very essence of Brian. You must think of your soul first and your body second. Isn't this the picture of fasting? When you fast, what are you saying? You're setting aside what your body needs to focus on the need of your soul. You're saying, I can go hungry, but I cannot go hungry in my soul. My soul must be nourished. I believe my life is more than just food and clothing. I believe the most important need of my life is to grow in my trust of God. Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Don't think about that day yet. This day, 
The day that you are in has enough evil for itself. Handle today's concerns today. As we conclude, I would just say to you, first of all, if you are a counselor of those who have anxiety, who are being anxious, take note of the way that Jesus approaches this. Did you note it? There are imperatives But by and large, he asks questions. If you're a counselor, show the mercy of Christ and ask questions. Remember his love to his people there that provoke, that that draw out like poison those false beliefs that give rise to anxious thoughts. Remember this. It is not God's will for you to go through this life anxious and fearful about the future. That isn't His will. Christ did not die to leave you imprisoned to fearful emotions. This morning, He calls on you to re-engage with His Word. Listen to me. Sometimes we think, I'm going to... I'm going to work on this and I'm going to take some sticky notes and I'm going to write some Bible verses on it and I'm going to put it up on my car window so that I can read it periodically and commit that to my mind. And one of the troubles that we have is you're, you're treating that sticky note like it's an aspirin and it isn't intended to work that way. Prayer doesn't work like an aspirin. These things sustain you. What you need is not just to know that verse, but to digest it. It must go in. It must produce fruit in your mind. You must understand what false thoughts it is calling you to put off and what positive thoughts it's calling you to put on. You must understand God's Word. How does faith grow? It grows through the faithful, repeated application of the truths of Scripture to our minds and hearts during the training periods, the afflictions of life. The more fearful you are, the more diligently you must apply yourself to God's Word and to prayer. And let me just give you one last thing to consider. Um... In, in October of 2018, uh, we had a child diagnosed with cancer. It was probably the lowest point in our lives. Filled us with fear. Filled us with trepidation. I myself had nights where I couldn't go to sleep because there were these evil thoughts that I couldn't get out of my mind. All of these what ifs. What if this happens? What if this happens? And I, I was full time in seminary trying to provide for my family and wrestling with these thoughts of fear. What am I going to do? How are we going to get through this? And one particular night, um, I got out of bed, couldn't sleep, and I knelt down in the spare bedroom. And I did something that I want you to to do. I want to encourage you to do. I confessed those thoughts to the Lord as sin. You see, what I was doing is I was doubting. I was doubting Him. You can't do this for me. This is outside of your plan and purpose for my life. 
You're not powerful. I need to be the one who's on the tail of every doctor making sure that they, did you run this test? Did you run this test? Did you run this test? And if I don't do it, it won't get done. And my son's not going to get well. And God said to me, do you know what? Your life, you profess about your life that to die is gain. Don't you believe that for your son? And in that moment of confession and repentance, the Lord enabled me to put on right thoughts. I encourage you, beloved, if this is something that's a part of your life, it's not God's will. Go to Him in confession. Confess it as sin. And ask for his forgiveness and ask the one who has infinite mercy at his right hand and joy to give it to you. And he will in his time. Let's pray. Father, we have not even begun to imagine all that you are capable of doing. And we ask this morning that you would forgive us for doubting, forgive us for fearing the things that ought not to be feared. You have called upon us to fear You alone. And Lord, so many times we give ourselves to fears that shouldn't be fearful to us. We fear things that You control, things that You ordain, things that You organize, rather than You Yourself. Please forgive us. I pray for myself and my friends. Lord, I ask that You would help us to repent. Repent by putting off those false thoughts and putting on right thoughts to doing what's right in your eyes. And Lord, I ask that you would show yourself faithful to your people by strengthening our faith. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.